Hello, everyone.、Um, welcome to Nouvel Nouvel Podcast. I'm Jillian Zhang. Today, we are very pleased to invite Professor Whitney Chutin to have a brief conversation with us. Dr. Chutin is an assistant professor in the English department at the University of Pennsylvania. She is co-editing a couple of digital zines and the book Digital Sound Studies. In addition, her forthcoming book, Cut, Copy, Paste: Fragments of History, being staged on the Manifold Scholarship Platform through the University of Minnesota Press. Discuss three French communities that assemble books from fragments of paper media in the 17th century. With that, Dr. Chutin, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jillian. Yeah, no problem.、Um, it's the tradition of the podcast to ask our guests by introducing themselves. So, can you say a little bit about your academic background and、uh, specifically how you become interested in early modern book history? Sure, I'm a little bit of an academic hybrid.、Um, I guess going all the way back to my undergrad days, I went to a small. Liberal Arts College, known as Hood College in Frederick, Maryland. It was formerly a, a women's college, and I knew I wanted to be an English major, but、um, I was really bit by the kind of book history, digital humanities bug、um, through my mentor Martin Foys, who's an Anglo-Saxonist, early medievalist, and、um, does really cool work on the history of media in the early medieval period. I knew that I was interested in media. I knew I was interested in kind of all this cool digital stuff that was coming out. People were starting to talk about video games in、yeah. scholarship. They were starting to make video games as scholarship. It was just really cool and exciting as an undergrad. I wasn't sure I wanted to go to grad school, so I、um, applied to a wide variety of programs from media studies. To English, to communications, and everything in between. I was really struck、um, by this program at MIT, known as Comparative Media Studies. That's a master's program, and ended up going there. And I didn't think actually I would even go on to a PhD, but. Um, while I was there, I got really excited in the history of digital poetry and digital narratives, and and really started seeing the connections between all this cool stuff that was going on with digital poetry and the the medieval and early modern stuff I had been focused on as an English and philosophy major、um, in earlier years, and I thought there's really a cool connection here, and decided to go on to、uh, get a PhD in order to pursue it more, thinking about book history and print. As a kind of early forms of media, and and what these earlier forms of media can teach us about our our digital moment, that's kind of what brought me to this hybrid of working across digital humanities and book history, and and being in the early modern period. While I love the period, was somewhat of an accident, and I think I mentioned this in my talk, but. It's a moment. I see the 17th century in England as a moment of media hybridity, and I don't think we've recognized that enough in the field. So I got really interested in that in grad school, and then kind of in my early years as a faculty member. But I'm open to moving on to working in the 19th and 20th centuries in in the history of media,、um, or even you know shifting earlier to to other periods. I, I really like to think、um, transhistorically about these questions. Yeah, that sounds great. I can see how you focus on many different fields, not like some scholars just focus on one field. I'm very interested in how you can connect these different fields together. In your talk last Friday on early modern metadata, 
You mainly talk about the collecting and the compelling habits of a 17th century、um, biographer John Beckford, and how there was a community for people like John Beckford to share like collectible materials. So when did John Beckford like come into the picture for you, and when did you like put it together with your interest in book history and digital humanities? Yeah, on this question of of interdisciplinarity, I, I often think about image I got from Eileen Joy, who might have gotten it from somewhere else. But、um, there's two different kinds of people, or at least two different kinds of people, or humanists in universities.、Um, there are people who are really deep, you know, scholars on one kind of narrow, deep subject matter. Like they might know, you know, something about. Ancient Assyrian language, right? And that's like their specialty, and they don't move outside that specialty. And then there are people who work more broadly across different areas. And I see myself definitely as the latter. And I think that we we should work together. I think those are both important components of a university. On this kind of topic of people who work broadly across different fields, John Bagford is definitely one of them.、Um, this 17th century bibliographer I was talking about, and I've always been attracted to figures. Like that,、um, I don't actually remember how I came across John Bagford. To be honest,、um, within the book, the book project started actually looking at a community known as Little Gidding and the Harmonies, which are these biblical concordances that they cut and paste together. And I do remember how I came across that. It was a footnote in Will Sherman's fabulous book called. Used books. He talks about cut up books and manuscripts in really cool, interesting ways. And he has one little footnote on Little Gidding, or maybe like a sentence on Little Gidding. And I was like, that sounds really cool. I should follow up on that. Once I became interested in Little Gidding as cutters and pasters of manuscripts, I started seeing examples of other figures doing similar work, of which Bagford is is definitely one of them. And I see him as an early modern. Book historian, of course, bibliographer, but also an early digital humanist. He wasn't working in a digital milieu,、um, certainly pre-electronic in the late 17th century,、um, but he was using similar methods to what we consider to be digital humanities methods. Yeah, you pay attention to the footnotes, and it finally come out to a project. It remind us. As graduate student, we should really pay attention to footnotes. We should read、Absolutely. them, yes, very carefully. <laughs> I also noticed that your research is critically engaged with the concept of media in early modern period. However, the term media or media、um, is absent from the early modern lexicon. So my own research focused on listic media in pre-modern China. So these kind of questions come to me all the time. I'm really interested and curious about how you deal with this situation in your own studies. Yeah, it's a really good question. I've never been bothered by anachronism、uh-huh. um, in my work. I think that anachronism, if it's tactical or targeted or Intentional in some way can be really useful for helping us see something different in the past, right? So,、yeah. if we approach history thinking about digital media, we're going to start to see 
concepts like collaboration. I recently read something that was talking about folksonomies in 18th century collections. Folksonomy is not a word that the 18th century had available to them, but we can start to understand what they were doing by using the vocabulary of the present. And this is something that is talked about in a field known as media archaeology a lot. And um, it has its own problems, but I've been really inspired by this kind of call to use the present as a map for exploring different territories in the past. I think it's necessary because it's what's enabling the flourishing of a lot of um, political work around race and gender and sexuality right now. People thinking that the present moment needs to have deeper engagement with history and using present concerns around, for instance, um, trans pronouns like language and when, when it comes to gender and then looking to the past and adopting that framework of what matters to us today and looking to the past, we can see something different in the past, right? So, mm -hmm. so the anachronism doesn't really bother me. So when it comes to medium or media, it's, it's very similar, right? No, they didn't have the term media or medium, but they definitely mediated culture. Um, and that's, that's the point, right? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, and um, talking about this, I'm thinking like, um, like, for example, even though like John Beckford didn't use the word medium to talk about his collectible materials, of course, he collected like different texts on different media. I think he collected etching or mm -hmm. engraving mm -hmm. like, and also woodblock prints. Yeah, all kinds of visual materials, all mm -hmm. kinds of waste. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm curious. Did he has a preference on collecting this text on different media? He was such a capacious thinker. He really just collected everything that he thought was interesting related to the history of technology, right? So uh -huh. the example I use all the time is that he collected ream wrappers, which are like the trash paper rings that kind of go around a ream of paper that you tear off when you open up the paper, right? Yeah. But they have markings related to the paper maker. They have markings that can tell you something about the date of production, provenance, things like that, right? And they also speak to a history of how paper was sold, which is something that we actually lack a lot of direct evidence on. So the fact that he thought, hey, this might be useful to someone's really interesting to me. Um, so I noticed that your research um, preferred to bring the pre-modern media in the conversation with contemporary media. And you use the digital humanities and digital tools in your research. Um, could you share an experience in which digital humanities help you to uncover an unexpected outcome or orient your research to a new direction? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think it's a, a really pressing one for those of us who work in digital humanities because um, we have to show that these new tools and methods are valuable. That being said, I do want to say that a lot of my work I tend to think about like theories and concepts of digital humanities, like that's what's always on my mind. And that includes like shifts in the contemporary publishing environment, um, shifts in scholarly communication, changes in the way that we share our work and, and publish our work, right? That's what's been most transformative for me is thinking, well, okay, I'm working with these manuscripts that are really bespoke and boutique and interesting, and you have to see them in order to understand them. But I wouldn't be able to publish a catalog of, you know, with, with 100 pictures of these books. That's just not possible given the restricted economics of academic presses, right? So, yeah. 
digital and open access offers us an opportunity to actually put these materials online. And in doing so, I, I would argue it changes those kind of stories that we can tell about the past, because as soon as you can share different kinds of materials, you can relate different stories. Um, but it's not just the images that can be transformative. In one chapter in, in my book project, for instance, I was interested in this a donation of books that a man named Edward Benlows gave to his college library, St. John's College Library in Cambridge, mm -hmm. in order to think about what that donation meant to him and what it signified culturally. I looked to the Private Libraries of Renaissance England collections, which is a really fabulously edited set of book lists where people have found kind of book inventories and edited them and tried to identify using things like the SDC what actual items these were. And that gives a really good point of reference for, for Ben Lowe's donation collection. Mm -hmm. And that PLRE data has been digitized and is all on a Folger database. So I was able to just scrape that data, put it into a spreadsheet, take the Ben Lowe's spreadsheet, and then do things like map where the books were published, create a timeline noting the moments when most of the books in different collections were published. And doing that, you can kind of get a good comparison of like what other people were donating at the time, scholars, women, and so on. And you can start to see a shift in the kind of books that were being collected and the kind of books that then were being pushed into college and university libraries. Now that's all work that could technically be done by hand, but I think the amount of effort it would take to do it by hand is like, wouldn't make it feasible as part of a project, but it's much easier now to just scrape the data and use it as a point of comparison. So it's those little moments, like everyone wants to see some massive transformative, like completely challenges our understanding of X, Y, and Z. I think that what instead we need to look to are how these, how accessibility, open access, how the ease of being able to like do things like mapping um, and, and this kind of comparison, how that's going to change the kind of stories that we tell. All these little moments and ways that just being able to access digital materials is changing the work. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think you've emphasized we use the digital humanity is promote accessibility. You not only focus on the paper media, you also added a project on Sonic scholarship called Provoke, right? Yeah, I think that it's also very important in terms of accessibility. If we are like dealing with um, sound material, we cannot just have that kind of scholarship on hard copy because it's impossible for scholars to show the materials they use. So that's why I think the provoke your edited is very, very important. So I'm wondering, have you come across any challenges when working on these audio materials and projects? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, my friend and collaborator on that Provoke project, Mary-Kate Lingold, has been thinking about this question in really interesting ways historically, um, working on um, 18th century African-American music and sound and um, just all kinds of really cool stuff and has done podcasts of her scholarship that I think um, you know, completely changed how she could tell the history she wanted to tell. I think a big challenge to us, us, which you mentioned in the question itself, is that 
our scholarly modes of working are not really adapted to, to audio, right? So mm -hmm. the idea of annotation and citation and taking notes, it's all text-based, right? right? And so we, we need more robust tools in some ways in order to incorporate audio into our scholarship a little bit more. Things like being able to cite audio and, and an audio mm -hmm. file to see where something's interesting. Mm -hmm. These are all things that people bring up as limitations. So in some ways, there's it's an uphill battle to get more audio in our scholarship. Things like this, right? The podcast and other podcasts. I certainly consume a lot of audio as well. And it's a great way, especially now that we have webinars, recorded talks. I listen to talks when I cook dinner at night all the time now, right? So yeah. I think it's changing, right? We're, we're mm -hmm. changing how we share things. And that's really the point that as, as the ways that we communicate change, um, we assign different values to different types of things, right? And we mm -hmm. start to see our scholarship a little bit differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's really important. Do you use any digital humanities methodology or digital tools in your teaching? How um, your student like respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. I teach an introduction to digital humanities here. We have a, a DH uh, minor. Mm -hmm. And I teach a, a grad course similarly, and I also teach a book history course. And all my courses always have digital projects in them. So in the book history course, every student contributes to a wiki. So I just um, mm -hmm. made an instance of MediaWiki, which is the software that Wikipedia is built on. So we basically have a Wikipedia called Cultures of the Book. And in every class, every instance of the class, each student in the class contributes an entry to it. So there have been, I think, three classes so far that have contributed to the wiki in some way or edited others' entries. And so it's this kind of ongoing living resource that helps the students see the work in the class that they're doing as important to a broader audience than just, you know, one, which is me, the professor. Um, and I've taught in the past classes on early modern media, um, which have been really fun, where we do things like look at the publication history of Isabella Whitney. There are great editions of Isabella Whitney's work, but they're limited in scope and that they only publish a few of the poems in her collection, Oh, Sweet yeah. Nose Gay. What we do is we look at the modern edition and then we go back to the Evo scan and we compare and contrast what's missing here. And it turns out a lot of, for instance, her poems that are letters written to someone and then someone else might respond to the letter as a poem, those are within the printed book. And so we can see that she was actually participating in a network of communication using her poetry and her verse in the printed book, as opposed to the modern edition, which has stripped out all evidence of that and focused on her as like the sole author, which comes from our longstanding model of authors as being kind of singular, solitary, lone geniuses, right? Mm -hmm, so yeah. I think little things like that in all different types of classes can be a good way to get students to engage with the history of the materials as they've been experienced or enacted with over time, which is part of understanding to think critically about them, right? Not just interpret the text or the image or whatever as a lone thing just in a vacuum, of course, but to consider it within a historical web, a semantic web, a, a, a web of culture in, in which it, it has made change meaning over time, according to the different audiences that interact with it. Yeah, I think that sounds like a very cool project and students can know how um, from our point of view and look back to the past and the context are already changed. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah, yeah, that's 
That sounds very cool. So I think it's a good place to end our conversation. Um, so thank you, Winnie, for sharing your research and your experience with us. Thank you, Jillian. Mm -hmm. Thank you.